Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, a warm welcome to Brooklyn's talk evening, uh, members talk. Uh, unfortunately, you've got me tonight, and you, you, you saw my warm-up back there, I hope, in the, uh, in, in the, the, so I don't need a lot of introduction. Um, and the other good thing tonight is uh, that the fire exits are working. Normally, when we uh, do this, uh, the, the excuse is, if you see me run out of there, follow me. But unfortunately, tonight, they're all working, so that's a, a first for a while. So, um, Harry... Uh, who is organized and responsible for the talks, um, asked me a few months ago and said he wasn't here, would I step in? And I sort of said, yes. So you've got me tonight. Uh, it's the first time I've done one of these, so uh, I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. Harry's apparently going to log in and check that everything is here. But tonight we've got a really unusual and interesting and different aspect to motorcycling. Um, We've got um, Keith, Keith Futch, with his book, Absurd. So Keith is here. Welcome, Keith. Please have a seat. Hot seat. What I was going to say to all you guys is, have you ever done anything absurd? <laughs> have you ever done anything absurd on a motorbike? Yes? Well, we'll find out maybe from the master. Um, so welcome, Keith. Um, Great to be here, John. Sorry? Great to be here. Good. And good to have you. Uh, we're going to talk about his book. And maybe just a good starting point is to learn a little bit about why you became a motorcyclist, why you wrote a book, why it's absurd. So maybe we'll start by a little bit about you. Um, who you are, what you are, very briefly, okay. or as the Americans would say, um, your elevator pitch. Yeah, okay, elevator pitch. Um, I saw a picture and I just decided that I just wanted everything in that picture in my life and I wasn't going to die until I did it. Uh, let me just start this slightly differently. Uh, I noticed in the blurb coming that uh, George, my publisher, has put out on the book, he describes us as sexagenarians. Okay, which is a moniker which I, I'm happy to go with. The truth of the matter is we're not sexagenarians, but we're in our 70s. And this is a time when people are trying to wrap you up in cotton wool and put you away. So the, the mission, the idea, was that I just saw a picture of three guys standing on a hill somewhere in Africa looking out in the far desert. And near to them were three classic motorbikes. They were 500cc Royal Enfields, to answer to your question. Everything in that picture just filled me with admiration and envy. And I decided that we would do that. I would do that. But I needed to make the crew. So I asked my elder brother, would he do that? And he said, if you're going to do that, I'll ride with you. And I asked a friend, David, who I knew was the right make of man to be fun on the trip. Our fixer on the road would be David. Not engineering technical fixer, but the man who could conjure something out of nothing if we had a problem would be David. And he saw the picture and he said, brilliant. Was he going to ride? Yes. And so we started. Old guys, never having ridden a motorcycle. And we set two objectives. First of all, we decided that we had to be motorcyclists. Not a small piece of paper enough for a bit of a holiday. We wanted to be full-blown 
category A motorcyclists. So the deal was that we had to get full Cat A licenses such that we were proven, proven and competent to ride any production motorcycle anywhere in the world. That was the minimum starting point. Basically, it meant turning these old men into warrior motorbikers, making new men out of the old. Having done that, we could pursue the dream, and the dream was to ride from Europe across North Africa to the Sahara, across the Rif and Atlas Mountains, taking it as we found it, traveling light, wild men, till we got to the Sahara, and all we wanted to do was to see the sunrise just once over the desert. Then we turned and came back. It was just so much fun. And yes, it was absurd. Everybody said it was absurd. Why would you do that? Well, why would you not do that? And so the whole point about absurd is there are times in your life where if you really want something and it makes no rhyme or sense, that is no reason not to do it. So we did. Right. And we found it so amusing, so much fun, that I wrote a book because I just wanted to share that story with others. Okay. So you... You've set yourself, uh, it's quite interesting because actually the two of us share a lot of things in common. You know, we, we lived in Hong Kong. Yes. We've both been expatriates. Yes. Um, we have a Yorkshire background, if you can understand the translations. Yeah, but, English, but, but you're for real, I'm a bit thick. Yeah. And we've lived expatriate lives, we've travelled. But there's only one difference. You started late in life motorcycling. And his interesting story about how you got to be uh, fully certified and all the rest of the bits of paperwork. And um, I started, I've, I've only been riding bikes for 68 years. Yes. So I'm still learning. Yes. I'm not fully qualified or whatever. But, uh, so it's an interesting... Believe, believe you me, we've just ridden down to this meeting with you. And it is my singular honour. And um, my, our other riders, Michael, my brother, David... Peter from Germany, to come to Brooklands, to be invited to Brooklands to, to talk with you in this historic place is really a great honor, and I, I'm thanking you for that. I once did, 10 years before, I, I, I saw a similar picture about the desert of Namibia at the time when there was an advertisement for a long race in Namibia, and the same thing happened. I, I just felt it was something that I wanted to experience, to do, such that it was then part of my fabric, it was part of my DNA. Nobody could take that away from me. Uh, and so this idea of old, or too old, from my eyes looking out, John, I'm 35. I've always been 35. And now that sounds absurd, no. but that's it. it's a bit scary when I shave in the morning and I look and the person who's looking out at me is somebody that I don't actually recognize and you think to yourself, what the hell happened? The decades rolled by. But is that any reason not to do anything? And it's just the opposite, actually. And, and I am a learner motorcyclist, very much so. We all are. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is just you see it. You know it inside you that you want to do it, so you have to do it. Age is totally irrelevant. I think the, um, it might be interesting to share with, with the audience the, the sheer difficulty of, of getting through the system, which, you know, when I took my motorcycle test, in, um, you know, when I was 16, um, people were killed regularly on the motorcycles mm. on the road. And they've introduced really positive 
way forward to stop that happening. But equally, it's a pain in the what you call it for people who want to get on and ride a motorcycle. Maybe you share a little bit of that with. Um... It, 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 we, we were very, very optimistic starting on because, you know, if we looked at the combined age of driving experience that we had, we were enormously experienced about the road system and how to drive, we thought. Um, and also, there comes that assurance that comes with being elderly anyway, we know it all. Um, but it, it came as a shock to the system to realize that the British government was very serious in terms of what you need to do. Uh, and they weren't giving us any shortcuts. You know, when I went to take my theory test in Huddersfield, very, very serious documentation checks to make sure that I wasn't faking. What could I be faking? It was a surprise to be told to take everything out of my pockets and put it in the locker then put my tie in the locker, then put my belt in the locker. It was a surprise to be told to take off my shoes, show my feet, make sure that the socks had nothing stuffed inside of them. They confiscated all of my tissues. And the woman uh, who was in charge of it was a Rotherham woman, so she was definitely alpha female and very commanding, and I had to just do what I was told. And I noticed that there was a great seriousness in all of the testing. But there was a great understanding and humor. So when it finally, finally, it came to passing the tests, I was very appreciative of all the work that was done there. I think the, the first learning point was realizing, not on a 125cc riding that, that we, we could manage. They did say, when, when I signed up, and we started our training on a deserted airfield in Yorkshire, thinking that that would be a good flat surface to start handling a motorbike. Um, the the, the 125cc element of that the CBT went pretty smoothly, actually. Uh, David just needs to see the video, and he can do it. But for my brother Mike, it's all counterintuitive, basically because we've lived all our lives thinking that we know everything anyway. So when it came to getting onto a, the big bike, a 650cc, it is such an enormously powerful machine compared to a 125. And that was evident in the way the bike stood there waiting for us to get on board, sort of sneering to itself. Um, flying it was fantastic. Going up and down a runway is not that complicated. And I brought the bike round after a few routines. Time for yet again another cup of tea. I brought that round and I was just coming into a slow curve to stop forward to that tee and I got the brakes wrong, I fudged the brakes and the whole bike went wild. It, it went as if it had just got smashed with a telegraph pole and I was thrown off and my learning point was that 70 year old I could still bounce. That was a very positive statement to know. Um, and and it, took, it took a few drops of the bike for me to realize that this was going to be a a matter of the science and technology of riding a, a two-wheeled motorbike, uh, motorcycle, but also the art of it and, and getting all of that right. And it took us two years. We, each of three of us, we took different journeys to do that. Mine took me to uh, Southeast Asia where I spend a lot of my time. Um, my brother and David persevered here. We tried different driving schools. My formula in the end was that when I was in Malaysia, 
and I checked my Malaysian driving license, which had been issued based on my British driving license, there was a little piece of fine print that said, for reasons that I don't understand, but I'm grateful, that I was actually licensed in Malaysia to ride a 250cc bike. And so I took the same step that we used to take when we were younger people, mm. where the, 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 you got your provisional license, you stuck your L-plate on the back, you got on the bike, and you rode it, and you kept riding it and falling off until you got better. And so about 12 months later, I came back, having ridden my Kawasaki 250cc for about 1,000 miles in Malaysia, uh, and it was a different scenario because I now felt that the bike was part of me and I was part of the bike. Now, when that transformation took place, I don't know, but it was key. Then it became possible to deal with the nitty-gritty of the mod one and the slow maneuvers and the fast maneuvers and then get on to convince people that I could ride safely uh, on the road. And it was as if a seismic shift in tectonic plates had suddenly moved when he said, okay, you've got your license. Because the whole world opened up. The stress had all been about learning to ride. Now I was free to ride. And I just wanted to get on the bike, go to the nearest motorcycle shop and buy myself a proper leather jacket because I was now privileged enough to own one. I, you know. It's a rocker. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was the journey that we took and uh, it, we, we had different rites of passage, but we both got to that point where to our enormous surprise and the horror of our families, we actually had the big bike licenses. That's the starting point, as you know. Mm -hmm. Now it was time to go on that odyssey, to go to those faraway places. Maybe I should just share briefly with you my experience, okay? So here I am at 16. And I applied for my test, uh, and I got a test within a fortnight of my birthday. Um, I lived in North Yorkshire, and I had the choice of either taking it in Northallerton, if anybody knows North, York North Yorkshire, or Middlesbrough. Now, it was a big choice, because Middlesbrough had traffic lights, Northallerton didn't. Mm -hmm. So it was an obvious choice to go to Northallerton. And it's the most bizarre situation when I think back. And Northallerton, for anybody who's not been there, um, it's got a wide high street. So the road runs down the middle and there's cobbled parking on either side. And the, um, the, the licensing centre was just off the high street. So you went there with your motorcycle and you did the bits and signed all or whatever off. And the, the chap uh, got you to ride down the back street, which was parallel to the high street, and watched you go down and turn at the roundabout and go up the high street. And while you were doing that bit, he nipped out to, to observe you on the high street, you see. Um, and then he, you have to go to another roundabout, left again, and come back down. And he said, when you see me put my board out, I want you to do an emergency stop. So you go through this process, and I did it on a 98cc James, which was lucky to do 30 mile an hour. And the rules were that if you knocked the guy over with his board on, you failed. <laughs> if you didn't, you passed. You know? And that was it. You know? And um, that was my introduction to motorcycle. What he didn't know is I already had six years of extensive uh, demolition of the North Yorkshire moors on a motorbike, which sort of added me in good stead. Anyway, I, it just shows how the world has changed. And uh, we can both get to the same point. Uh, I, a quick point about that. Mike, uh, David and I both chose to, to finish our training 
for Mod 1 and Mod 2 um, in Lancashire. And we went to one of the government's new super test centers. And it was delightful. It was nicely placed. There was free drinks available. There was a cafe across the way. But the point was that you did your practice laps there. And every time you rode out on a motorbike, you always did a route that brought you back to this place where you came in and got refreshments, where you had a chat. And the whole point about it was to diffuse the tension mm -hmm. in going for that test. They were interested in your success because they wanted safe drivers. And I think that's a big step forward. Yeah, no, I, the number of deaths on the road from motorcycles is, is way, way down. In fact, I think there's a higher death rate in, six, in 17, 18-year-old uh, children in high-performance cars these days, which is a different area. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about, really. So we've got this photo in the deserts and the, the, the piece that went with it. And one of the things I was going to ask you about this, which intrigues me, because if anybody lived in Hong Kong, it's very, very 100% on the ball every day of every minute of every day, whatever you were involved in, really active mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I had um, uh, one of my engineers, I managed to get him a job in America. And one of the things that he wrote back within about a fortnight, this guy had been to the beach, right? Well, Hong Kong's got plenty of beaches mm -hmm. and whatever. And, and, and I'm reading this letter from him and he said, um, he said, I didn't realize, he said, I did a 40 mile journey to go to the beach. Well, in Hong Kong, the longest journey you can do is about two and a half miles. Yeah, but it takes you four wondered, hours. Yeah. yeah, literally, the judging hours not, not. And I wondered whether the, uh, the thing in your mind when you saw this photograph and the article, whether because of the Hong Kong background that this also had a, a huge um, impact on you more than maybe somebody else um, thought or not. Uh, Hong, Hong Kong has an impact um, but not in that sense. I mean, uh, I've spent most of my life living and working abroad, and uh, my own personal observation is, is that the, two, the, the things most valuable in anybody's life is time, mm. and when you're 70, you know that it's more valuable. Uh, and secondly is travel. Right. It's, you know, I would need to live five, six, eight, ten lifetimes to do all of the things that I want to do. I want to live in Paris and learn French from a beautiful young French woman. I think that's a really good ambition to have. Mm -hmm. My wife has doubts about that. Um, I, I, want to, I want to go to other countries and absorb in the way that I've been privileged to absorb living in different cultures as part of the place, not just as a visitor observing it. Um, so sometimes, however, th there is that difference in opposites. And the one thing that I do have, having spent all of these years living in a tropical paradise, hot and steamy, or wet and hot, um, is the idea of deserts. There's something about deserts. Um, there is just something so compelling about their austerity. There is something about that enormous sky. And when the sun goes down and the stars are in the sky, you can choose whether you want to see stars, whether you want to spot the space station, look for satellites. It is that clear. Now, when you're doing, uh, you're doing an adventurous pursuit, on top of that, you've got endorphins. So endorphins, this is the class A drugs that God gives to us, and they become highly addictive. So this combination of adventure, romance in a desert setting is so 
compulsive, it is addictive. So the moment you've experienced it, you look to go back. So I'd already been to the desert in all of those circumstances for the most absurd race that you could ever do. 250 kilometer race over five days carrying everything that you need on your back except water. They will supply the water. Um, and it's um, just a highly charged, awful physical experience. But you do it in companions who are also doing it. Um, and what do you get at the end of it? Well, in my case, they took away eight toenails and gave me five days and three in hospital with three intravenous trips. But I never forgot about that sky. So I... it's interesting, you see, isn't it, that, that the absurd thing was you've had to go at it before you did the motorbikes with the running. I, it, I, I didn't always, well, the running was absurd. This is absurd. And absurd becomes, because simple, it's simply this. You know the answer to the question, why would you do that? There is no logical good answer to do that. But sometimes you, we need as individuals to step aside from rationality and be passionate about something. And if it's gonna make a new person of you, then just do it, that's my view. Now, that sounds easy to do, so you don't just do it. What you do is you take that first step towards doing it, and then you take a second step because you've taken the first, and then you take the third and the fourth. Now, you've got a sequential process in place, and it becomes easier to convince yourself to take the next step rather than throw away all of that effort. So don't think about the impossibility that's ahead. Think about the next step, and then you feel pretty good about those steps. Now you've got ammunition when people say, that's absurd. Well, yes it is, but I'm having a really great time. Don't even try to deal with the argument. Don't convince people that something that is absurd is not, and it's a good idea. Just say, yeah, it's great. And they fall about laughing, and then you fall about laughing, and everybody's falling about laughing, which is good, isn't it? So that's what you do. Okay, so, so you've got yourself to um, a position. You've got your, uh, your vision, etc. You've got, um, you've got your license, and, and we are remiss, by the way, we should have introduced your three compatriots here. Um, we've sort of semi-ignored them. No, I mentioned them, so, so my, my elder brother, Mike, okay. Okay, okay. My good friend, David, who is accomplished in all things. Okay, and, and Peter from Bonn in Germany. Peter has already done all of these things. He is just a, just a great guy to travel with, and um, that's great. So we, you've got to a point now where you've got the team, or, yeah. and, and you've got an idea, and then um, you had a little bit of a, a hiccup in the fact that um, a bit of international terrorism came along yes. and sort of uh, yes. destabilized, and I mean, uh, it's interesting, you know, when we think of the times that we're in now, you know, the, you were going to a very safe country, uh, you know, why should there be a problem, whatever, and out of the blue, bang, uh, yes. two ladies were uh, killed, I think, weren't they? Or something? They would, yes, two Scandinavian women were trekking and camping and they were found decapitated 
in the Atlas Mountains. We were going to the Atlas Mountains and the thought was in our minds, and it certainly it now became a really cogent reason in the minds of our family that we should not be doing it. So the thought was that we should now be traveling in a manner where we had people with us who could handle violence to our advantage. So we need something. Now, if I go back to that original picture in that glossy magazine, I did now know who those people were and why they were there. So I turned to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we, uh, I got in touch with a man whose CV had been removed from the internet. All I knew was that he was ex-military gentleman farmer now doing something in Andalusia. Okay, so when you see somebody's background is not on the internet, it's not on the internet for a reason. Interesting man. This is the first time I'd met an Englishman where all his mail was delivered to a petrol station eight miles from where he lived. And he lived high in the hills. So he was wonderfully mysterious. And I called him man in charge. Anyway, I contacted him, explained what we wanted to do, and asked if he could handle the logistics and particularly was he able to handle the risks that we could see. And he said, absolutely, you send me bundles of folding money and we've got a deal. And then he also um, did say that we needed, there was, there was sense in going with numbers. So the idea of us three setting off and doing it was, was perfectly feasible, but we opted for a safer option. And that was a really good decision because what we did was, yes, we had the motorcycling license, but this making new men out of the old is not always just about motorcycles, if you'll excuse me for saying that. It's actually about learning a new way of living where things are different and, and Mick, and he has a, his number two was a man who we all know of because we've seen his work. His name is Jason Howe and he is a war zone photojournalist and he's been in war zones for 30 years. He was the man who went and brought to the world's attention the terrible fighting that was going on in Colombia and he did that by just packing his bag, packing his camera and going there and making enough friends with the different factions to live behind the lines with the different opposing forces in Colombia. So Jason knew more about making a home in a hostile environment and living daily with death. And why you know him is because he is the photographer who was in Afghanistan and took pictures of that British foot patrol where a soldier got his legs blown off by a hidden device. And he was taking pictures, um, the instance that happened. And he fought a very long battle with the British government to actually get those papers put on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. And he needed to get the consent of every soldier in that unit to that publicity. And he achieved that and made himself a very big enemy of the British government. So he never went back to be embedded. So these two men, the difference, what they taught us, these were men who could get up in the morning and things could be rock bottom, but they had enough self-confidence in themselves to know at the end of the day, 
they would have made a good day of living for themselves in the most awful conditions. And to be in the companionship of people like that on an adventure is, is the best learning curve anybody could want. We, were, we loved being with them. And when they said jump, we jumped. And when they showed us what to do. But it was always stylish. It was always amusing. They were just great gentlemen who had lived a hard life and were protecting us and showing us the way. And he had 500cc Royal Enfields available in Andalusia. And I was asked earlier, why this motorcycle, which we've come to love? Well, we weren't picking or choosing. First of all, the motorcycle was Royal Enfield in that picture. And a 500cc Royal Enfield, you know, will carry us and our kit pretty well everywhere. And it was good for us, and that's what we enjoyed doing. Mm. And I, I gather that um, uh, meeting up with them, you had a test to pass. Yes, they, um, we, when we got there, um, we, we, it was very mysterious. We, we chose to fly into uh, to Andalusia via uh, Gibraltar, so we were there for a couple of days. And all we knew was that a message was going to come from Meg. He said, I will send you a message. We knew the day we would have to move. And eventually, yes, we got a text message to say, take a taxi to the border, cross the border into Spain, take another taxi, go to this particular pub in this particular village, and then message me and I'll pick you up. And then for the next two days of that weekend, he had us enduro riding through different terrain. He, um, we spent time on how we would travel in echelon, how, how we would ride together, how we would defend ourselves in difficult traffic situations. Um, and then we had kit inspection. And I failed sleeping bags, apparently. So I had to get borrow a bigger sleeping bag because my tropical weighted thing, which I thought was so sexy and light, was, was just inadequate for the Atlas Mountains. And I have to say, he was right. Because I thought, as did the kid, Shane Kidd, who was from Seattle, I thought deserts meant hot, Lawrence of Arabia hot, not always. And the season that we were in was the springtime. Mm -hmm. And in the Atlas Mountains, it was cold. And it was unseasonally cold. And when we got to the desert, we didn't notice it. We were just pleased to be in the desert. And it felt great and warm and nice. But the next day, it rained, and they had a whole year's rain in the desert in one day. And when that happens, it just turns to a big mirror finish yeah. surface of water for us to travel through. So, um, yeah, I was, he did right. I, I don't hold any grudges that I failed sleeping bags. I must point out that my brother and David had the most enormous sleeping bag you've ever seen. <laughs> I figured that they could have spent, you know, nights on top of a glacier and still been cozy warm. Mm. So, okay, good to know, good to know. <laughs> so um, so you passed the test, we your motorcycling skills and that, you yes. tested, and yeah. I guess learnt a little bit in those two days. Uh, yes, we did. I mean, uh, we, we learnt a big lesson. We learnt in actual fact that if you think riding a motorcycle is perfection, that you're always going to be you know, perfectly positioned, that's not true. I think what we learned was that riding a motorcycle, particularly in enduro circumstances, is do you have enough skills to come out with an optimum in the circumstances outcome? 
preferably alive. And that means that there are going to be times when you're going to slide the bike. You're going to maybe slide the bike because you want to stop the bike, and that's one way of doing it. Um, or you are going to make a decision to not fly head first into a ravine or into a thicket of trees. You're going to do some other way. So it, it was not always nice to see. But we came out safe, and I think what Mick needed to know was, were we in charge of the motorbike, or was the motorbike in charge of us enough to know that we could, we had skills enough to optimize what could be a perilous situation? Yeah, it's interesting. I used to teach people to ride off-road bikes and race enduro bikes, etc. And the cannon fodder that we got were people who rode road bikes. Mm. And it used to frighten me that the ability of at least 50% of the people who we used to get um, were, in my view, totally incompetent, no throttle control, not understanding braking and, you know, all this sort of thing. So um, if you want any advice about learning to ride motorbikes, go to an off-road school and have a day there and enjoy it. But like you did, get fit first because it's hard work. Yes, so, yes. <laughs> and yeah. that, that, that's pretty good. So right, so we've now got a situation where um, we've got, um, uh, and quite a relief, I guess, somebody to take care of the logistics and the, the worry, if I can consider that, of the unknown yes. and all that sort it, of thing. It was, and Mick's, Mick's formula was very simple. He said, you each have a swag you know, rolled up on top of his support vehicle. He had a lot of safety equipment in there. He had the makings of a camp kitchen, but he didn't have much in the way of supplies. We stuffed quite a lot of malt whiskey in the cracks just to get us through. Um, but, but the idea was that we were going to forage and wild camp as we went, because Mick likes it quirky. He doesn't like, you know, the bed and breakfast formula. Um, and so the idea was that we were going to wild camp, and we were all set for that. That was, that was a great experience. However, the weather was, was pretty much against us. We did wild, wild camp, um, but equally at the end of something like eight, nine, ten hours motorcycling in, in wet, cold conditions, what we really wanted was, was a hot meal and somewhere dry, sheltered to sleep preferably warm, because by now, warm seemed to be the most desirable thing that existed in the world. And we were not warm, yeah. and we needed warmth. You can get very cold, can't you? Yes. Uh, on a but, but, dump. And... But, but, you know, uh, what, what we learned about, uh, about Morocco is the warmth of the people is, is as warm as their hot, black, sweet coffee, which is just, get you going. But what they can conjure out of a tagine you know, in a simple fashion, lightning fast, really good, wholesome food. Um, just what you need. Simple, well done, solid meal, hot coffee and people who cared and a bit of a charcoal fire to sit around. Right, so we're, we're now in a, you've got yourself into a situation where you've, um, and, and maybe if uh, uh, the other thing which you hadn't, I think, thought about was like the backup of having a vehicle and, um, you know, because the, the, uh, a motorcycle you can't carry a lot on. And if you no, it was a bit of a godsend because we've just come uh, from York to here um, riding our own motorcycle, no backup vehicle, and traveling light. David says we're traveling like Jack Reacher, light, okay. Um, and the trouble with that is there's no room for a bottle of malt whiskey, there's no room for a packet of cigars, I, nothing. It was fairly spartan, so... Yeah, we, we chose quirky, interesting hotels on the way down. Um, so we had that support vehicle, 
Um, and yes, that makes a difference because we were now free to ride the motorcycle unencumbered with baggage on the motorcycle. So we, we maybe had just a day bag, yeah. you know, a courier satchel or something, and that was, that was fine. And I, get, I guess you were a bit disappointed with the weather, you know, because uh, we here you are, you're going to uh, you know, a desert. I, and I, 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 I tend to over-engineer these things. So I've been, you know, tracking the weather on different points along that route for a long while to understand what the weather was going to be like. But um, we just picked uh, the perhaps too early a time to go and it hadn't settled. So it had, it, in the low areas, it had transi transited nicely into springtime. It was much more pleasant there than it was in the UK or northern Europe. Um, but Andalusia was much nicer than that. Um, but as we came up into the Rift Mountains and then into the Atlas Mountains, then we were just climbing up into banks of cloud that turned to rain. Or if it didn't turn to rain, to ride in cloud is to ride in just suspended water. <laughs> and it just mists and soak everything. So, you know, water would be running out of our boots, water would be coming horizontally, and it was cold. I think we were all protected to a degree. It's my mic just gone. We were all protected to a degree. Um, but for me, it was those areas where the water could get in. So what happened for me, I was wearing what I thought was summer weight goatskin gloves, mm -hmm. but the water came through the seams. And once the water was in there, the cold came with it. And then my hands got cold. And I know my co-riders and the rest of us had different degrees of exposure to that. And it just after six, seven, eight hours of that riding, it begins to soak out your strength at the same time. But it was just fabulous countryside, so that's what we were there to do. So, um, we had, I, I'm not sure quite, they first, you, you did wild camp and then you had a, a rather difficult incident at... Uh, well, we, we had, we, we had... Okay. Okay, this is my man. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, yes, we did. We, we, we had got into the high plateau of the Atlas to a place called Middelt, Rodeo City of the Atlas. So it's a fairly desolate place. But near Middelt, uh, 10, 15 miles out of town, is the Cirque de Jaffir, which enduro riders, not just motorcycle riders, but just uh, enduro-style drivers and rigs go to see. Um, and the Piste Jaffir is the road that spirals, snakes its way down from the high mountains into where you see this big, huge corrie that nature had carved out. And very, very great to see. That was 15 miles out of Medelt on off-road riding. And we were in Medelt midday, and so we were in high spirits. Let's go and pay homage to the Cirque de Jaffir. Absolutely fantastic riding. This is an enduro situation. In fact, before we went, the people in the restaurant who ran the restaurant we left from said, uh, please be reminded that this is regarded as the killer road. This is more people have died coming off this road. And so we, we went to give it a go. And um, it's one of those situations where once you start on your motorcycle to negotiate that route going down, 
you know there is no going back. You've, only, you've either got to keep going or you're going to be frozen there and need rescuing or you're going to go over the edge in sayonara, that's the end of it. So we, we got to the bottom and the plan was right at the bottom there is a stream that comes across with a rocky bed and then you go beyond that so you can do a circle. But those great uh, snowstorms that had happened that winter had brought down a lot of snow melt. This had brought down a lot of rock. This rock had got lodged in this area. And, and frankly, there was still high water. So there was no going forward. You would need, you know, a, a couple of battalions of really excellent sappers if you were going to get motorcycles across that. So we sat there thinking, okay, it's just great. We'll have to back out. But nearby uh, was a habitation austere Moroccan habitation. This is a hard land where people have to survive and you can't expect hot and cold running water, you know, soapy baths and beautiful white towels in those environments. So the children that steam, streamed out, they, they, they came running out of that as if it was an anthill that had been given a big kick. They all came running out, tassel-headed, red-cheeked little children, and their hair was all matted for all the wrong reasons, you know. Um, and, and they were the gatekeepers. So that was their location, 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 and they now wanted us to pay the toll. Not unreasonable. But the point was, we weren't going across, we were going back, and they could see that the negotiation wasn't going very well. So they decided to resort to violence in the way that children do, which is picking up rocks and stones. Now the thing is that a stone or a rock thrown by a child is still a stone and a rock. So we got out pretty quick. That was issue number one. The second issue was that having ridden out and feeling pretty good about this great accomplishment, it was dry and it was okay. And so this was wild camping in the wild Atlas Mountains. So we did. And we had a wonderful evening, a very great celebration and we were tired. And then we went to sleep with the stars above us and the mist could see in the picture the mist coming around us. And the problem was, not that day, the problem was the next day when it was breakfast time and we were getting up, getting ready to ride again. So simple breakfast, hot tea, a bit of a laugh, let's go. Um, one, of our, one of our group, Shane, from America, his kit was all there, his swag was there, everything was as it should be, except no Shane. He wasn't there he was missing on the mountain. And what had happened was he had got up, he had had a very good dinner the night before, he had got up, he needed to go to the bathroom, which he had crafted himself, he was very proud of it. Uh, and he never found it, and he never found us again. So that was about one o'clock in the morning, very cold, thick mist everywhere, he could not work out his navigation. Um, and so he was not there. And so we now were faced with a big crisis. We had a man missing in the high atlas and it was clear he was wearing just a thin tracksuit and light shoes. Not good, not good. Not good, yeah. So we uh, packed up, we left Jason there as marking the spot. We needed to get into Middelt to raise the alarm, see what we could be done and get our breakfast. So we did, we went for breakfast. And so, uh, a rather difficult, tense and... Yes, and, and yes, Shane, 
Shane of all of us knew better how to survive those circumstances because he's an adrenaline junkie. I was going to say he was quite a capable climber. And yes, his, his passion was mountain climbing. And he uh, had seen the same picture on the internet this time and decided that he wanted to try his hand at motorcycling. So like us, he got his license in America. He contacted Mick and so he joined this cohort of weird people who were motorcycling around the Atlas Mountains. I guess Mick becomes um, a very important guy at that point, in a way, is he or not? Yes, he did. Uh, but also, uh, the, uh, uh, equally important was a man called Noradine. Noradine was Mick's, if you like, familiar hand in Middelt. Noradine is a Moroccan. Uh, he, he works as sort of D in a, in a very nice restaurant in, in Middelt. But his real vocation is he is a mountain guide and mountain rescue. Now, the winter before in Morocco was some of the most austere and worst storms that people could remember. And there is no mountain rescue as such. It's a self-help society. Um, and the peoples in those high mountains suffered miserably. Mm -hmm. and people died of cold and people were trying to trek to get them out, and he was in the thick of that. So Noradin was a, a charming, friendly man, made of steel. Anyway, we, Mick got to Noradin. Noradin got to the authorities, and basically a message went out, has anybody seen you know, a man called the kid? <laughs> and he had, he had hiked out of the mountains in his tracksuit, stuffed with bracken to keep him warm. Until he came to Middelt, and he just simply asked somebody to point him to the nearest police station, and they filled him full of hot seat, sweet tea, wrapped him in blankets until that phone call. So, yes. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, you're training in life and going to sort of Boy Scouts and uh, all sorts of things that you do and, and come across uh, provides you with skills that you never know that you need. But when you do get into that situation, you understand yeah. that rivers run downhill and you know, roads don't go up. Yeah, I, I, I've been practicing my knots for years. I'm ready, I'm really ready. I'm, I'm really ready for that. Yeah, yeah. When I need those knots, I know they're gonna be there. But yeah. it's, it's just a wealth of knowledge. And you meet people on the road on those journeys who teach you things that yep. are simple, but you didn't realize. All of this is what made writing the book so interesting because yeah. it, it touches on all of these things. And, and fortunately, it worked out well. You found him. And, yes. Um, yes. I, I, you know, I, interesting how also, having gone through that, he more or less gets back on the bike and says, come on, let's get on, get finished. Yeah, he's he, a very resilient individual. We did, we did use up our float time in this whole program to to spend the rest of the day getting him thawed out, rehydrated, uh, properly sorted, and we were taken to the local Haman in the evening by Noradine to make sure that all was well, and uh, we were given their equivalent to a nice sauna and massage. It is very different, and um, should not criticize, you know. It was a very interesting experience. So we've got the shot behind us, which I think everybody would sort of see and think of that being typical desert, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's, it's what people imagine. And um, 
I think, again, um, I, I've, I've raced bikes in the desert in Saudi Arabia. And uh, as you described earlier, the, the desert is, uh, um, what should I say, it's like a third force. You know, it's a living, breathing, moving, pleasant, unpleasant, you know, all the adjectives you can think about, they all fit in some place. Mm. And you get into something like that, and I think you describe in the book that you're going to walk up this sand dune, and you thought, well, that's an easy thing. I, and actually, it is not easy. No, it's all. not easy. And no, I, I, I met the sand dunes when I was racing in Namibia. Um, and sand dunes, you're talking about sands that are maybe three, four, five houses tall, the sand dune. And, and it, it's true what they say. It's like going up an escalator the wrong way. So you ha once you start... For every footstep up you take, you're going to slip back at least half, if not more. So you start off saying, okay, it's a question of momentum and speed, but you're going up a steep slope and you simply can't get enough air into your lungs to fuel the body necessary to do that. And all the time, you know that you can't stop because it will be fruitless. You'll be taken back to the bottom. So you do that a bit more, and now your heart is beating to such a rate that you can hear the blood in your ears surging. And then shortly after that, your brain starts to tell you, no, 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 you cannot do this. Soon you're going to die because your heart is going to explode in your chest. But still you know, in that point of madness, that if you stop, you're going to go back. And at the same time, the sand seems to be getting heavier because your feet is going into the sand. So that next step means that you've got to pull it out of the suction of the sand and get it higher. And just when you know you can do no more, it seems to forgive you. And it goes, the gradient goes because you've reached the top. And you know one thing for sure, you're never ever in your life going to do that again. So you stay on the top. <laughs> you didn't attack those with the bikes, though. No, we didn't no. attack. Well, actually, you can. Yeah. In the right conditions. Yes. That, you know. But in that picture, isn't it beautifully pristine? And that's yeah. because the wind but, keeps cleaning it of yeah. the marks. The, the, the other thing which you see, which is also strange with this and with that, is you lose the horizon. Mm. Oh, you never find the horizon. No. You're never quite well, sure you know, where it is. What, what do you lighter. see when you get to the top of a sand dune? Another sand dune is what you see. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's, it's quite a, yeah. It, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. If anybody watches, wants real motorsport, off-road interest, you should watch the Dakar, which is in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, you're racing four, five hundred kilometers through desert like that. It, it was an, in, an interesting like observation, the Sahara Desert is just a little bit smaller than China. Okay, and most of it is not sand. That's right. The, the wind, the trade winds have blown this sand to create these areas, they're called ergs. And, and some of them are absolutely massive, the size of countries themselves. But the rest of it is, is rock and shale. Hard, shale. Hard. Yeah. And, um, when I was in Namibia in the daytime, midday, you could hear what would be rifle shots. But it wasn't. The sun being so hot, it was fracturing rock that would go off like a gun. So we're now um, made our dream, if we can say that. We've sort of got to what we wanted to be, and you're in the uh, process of going back and 
even that wasn't easy because um, we had a bit of mechanical trouble, I think, didn't you? With uh, one mm. of the bikes. We did. We did. The Royal Enfields carried us faithfully, but Mike had been having a problem with his machine uh, intermittently through the journey. It, it, would, it would suddenly just sort of lose power. And then if he pulled over and then restarted, it seemed to be okay. But we got to a point well on our journey back. We had about another 24, 36 hours to go in total. Um, and he, a hole was blown in his cylinder. So we were one bike down and we then had to deal with that. So Mick had all sorts of plans. So he, he we were near Chefchuan in uh, the Rif Mountains. So the idea was to get the bike there, which we did. Uh, he managed to get a truck to, to move it. He, we got it to where we were in the hotel and that was about 5.30 in the evening. So then he, he got on it and freewheeled it down into town um, to find a garage, not necessarily what you would recognize as a garage, but a garage that would um, sort it out. And we, we thought at that time, we didn't know the cylinder was blown. We just thought it was a repairable situation. So drain all the fuel lines and trying to find out what we thought this was a hydraulic lock in it, the water in the fuel, how to get that sorted out. It's only when it was stripped down that the hole was seen that we knew that the bike was going to stay. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were one bike down, and Mike boarded the support vehicle, and we came back. And um, after that, it, that, that was it, basically? Yeah. No, 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 that was not it. We now knew we were junkies. We now knew that something, I mean, we were leaving when we left and we were sitting back in Gibraltar waiting for a plane. We sat there looking at each other, just grinning. You know, we were bashed and bruised and we had a little bag of duty freeze and we were feeling very good. But something had definitely changed. I mean, what had changed was that we had taken something absurd to everybody uh, made something sublimely special for us. How, how long did it, once you got back, and uh, I've done things a little bit like this in, in a smaller way, but when you got back, how long did it sort of take for it all to sink in that um, you were actually back in civilization and the world that you knew and, and, and that? And how long did it Well, take? I guess it took as long as it took to shave off the beards that we'd grown, really, in reality, because we came back to the world that we left and the people that we loved were in the world that we left and they hadn't been to Africa with us. So all they saw were these you know, rather scruffy individuals who needed a proper wash and a shave, and everything was normal again, but not quite. I mean, it was normal, of course it was normal, but no, because something had changed. Um, and now my brother rides uh, Interceptor. David rides his own Interceptor. You know, it wasn't a holiday. No, it was life-changing. Yeah, experience. And I, I, I will tell you now, I was talking to Mick when we were doing the Enduro riding, and he told me a story. He's a hard man who's lived a hard life. And I asked him, who did he admire? And he gave me a name, and he told me a story. And I can't get that story out of my mind. So 
I'm already sort of fixated with another desert somewhere else. So, no looking back, and, and this is perhaps the point of writing the book. These things, it's absolutely true. There is, you're never too old to do anything. You're never too old to change the person you are, if you want to. And you're certainly never too old to ride a motorcycle either. So, um, we've got the book. And bringing back up to date, uh, what, I don't know, three, four, five months ago, um, you got in touch, or this happened, and you put together another mini-ride from Yorkshire? Yes, we did. And bringing we, up to date yes. of what, I mean, four, five to, days ago? Well, to be, to be, thank you for the invitation to come here tonight. Um, and, it, and it's a great honor, and we're grateful for that. And um, when we knew that this was going to happen, I contacted Mike, David, and Peter, and Shane, and I said, let's ride back. And so we, we came up with various schemes. And so the original scheme was, we knew the motorcycles that we rode in Morocco, with the exception of Mike's, was still in Andalusia. So the original scheme was to say, we will fly to Andalusia and we will ride back and complete the journey. And we had mapped out something like a 2,000 mile route, some of, some of the best riding in Spain and, and Europe to bring us here today. That was the plan. Mm. Um, and then COVID sort of changed the plan. Um, and so, we ended up with a mini, mini, mini version of that ride. And we decided that we would kick off in York, in the inn where we stayed, when we started the training a long while back. And then we have ridden down through the center of uh, England, stopping off at, you know, nice motorcycle haunts. So we rode across to Home Firth. There's, um, a garage there called IK Sports Classics, which has also got a cafe called the Carding Shed. It is a real great center of what vintage motoring was because really great mechanics is being done on renovations of, of cars and sports cars and setting them up for racing. Um, and on the way in, we had you know a bit of a, an issue on some very steep, highly cambered roads and Mike's interceptor got a bit bent um, so we managed to get it to the carding shed and whilst we filled up with nice pots of tea and great cake, those mechanics got to work and straightened everything out and did a great job. So if you're ever in Yorkshire, go to Home Firth and the carding shed. And then we came on down to uh, Castle Donington, went to Donington Park, which they were setting up for racing this weekend and that was great to see. And then we carried on down and we called in a triumph and uh, went to see the factory and have a look at their Quite great museum. Yeah, great place. Yep. And then we went to the Super Sausage Cafe, which was like paradise to us. Great music, super drinks, and fabulous food. And, and then we went uh, last night, we were in Great Missenden. We were very much hoping that the Missenden flyover was going to be in town because David is his biggest fan. Um, and grateful that Mark met us there and brought us in because to, to navigate the final route in. I, I would point out that I could not rent 
I don't have a bike in England. I couldn't rent a Royal Enfield. So both Peter and I ended up renting bikes. So we rode them from Essex up to York to start. And I, I've been riding uh, a BMW R9T. And um, so I didn't work out properly the navigation. So when I picked it up, I said, put a sat-nav on the front for me. So the BMW sat-nav was on. Well, that, I don't know if it was my riding, which was probably not great. I'm not sure what was. But we were in, in Matlock. I had a coffee. And then we rode out about three or four miles down the road. Not instantly, three or four miles down the road. Um, the, the sat-nav started to get disagreeable. It had kept rerouting me, and I'd been ignoring that. So it, it just shut down. It went into a sulk, and clearly it was not getting my attention. So suddenly it just flew off the bike. It bailed on me. You know, the sat-nav is gone. Um, and I did an emergency stop and went back, but by now a camper van had trashed that one. So that was one sat-nav gone. So now we're, we're sort of you know, creating new scenarios. So I've got my iPhone in my pocket. I've got Bluetooth connectivity to sound in my helmet. So now we're depending on Google Maps, this nice lady in Google Maps giving me verbal instructions, and that worked very well, except yesterday on the A5, because I need to put a power pack on the iPhone. This is stuffed into my riding jacket here. And we were doing 50, 55 down the A5, and it was quite busy. And I just felt it just bail out. <laughs> so that went west as well. So now an iPhone and a power pack is gone. So we probably should quit the navigation scene yeah, altogether. It, it's interesting, isn't it? You go through all your big journey and all the challenges and whatever, and you come here you know, for a relatively short distance, and it's the technology and all the bits and pieces and the traffic and yes. all that that becomes a okay. problem. Anyway, I think... Uh, I, um, I, can I just, just say that I know George is here, and I want to thank George, my publisher, and Della for helping out. We did, we did put out a lot of messages on, on Facebook, social media about the ride, um, and that was important that we did that. Um, and, and we didn't get the big cavalcade of, of, motor, of, of riders wanting to come with us. And why would we? We've got the, the DGR ride coming up this weekend. We've got the TT coming up. Summer's here. Everybody's out riding. However, in the book, I enjoyed writing it. But Jason Howe's photographs make this special because he is a wonderful photographer. And he was gracious enough to allow us to use all of his pictures, as you've seen. Um, and this picture, this is our rendition. That's, that's your brand, isn't it? That? This, well, this is our best effort of what got us going in the first place. This is our version of those three riders in Africa. And I think I like that picture a yeah, lot. Yeah, that's, that's a lovely photo. Well, ladies and gentlemen, do we have any questions? We have a microphone somewhere. If anybody has any questions for uh, Keith? Where's this gentleman here? Wait a minute, where's it? There's a mic at the... Um, the question is, you're, you're on road tyres most of the time. Yes. And that was okay? No, no puncture? So, well, with the exception of when we were in the Atlas and we went off-road to go to the Cirque de Jaffier, um, there was no reason that we were not. I mean, we were essentially on using the Moroccan mountain roads for that. Um, and yeah, it, it could have been an issue because these were not tubeless tires.
but we didn't, we didn't have punctures. Uh, Mick did say that he was really surprised when we considered the, the mileage that we had done and we had five bikes on the road that we didn't have any puncture issues. We had some other issues, that chains needed adjusting and stuff like that, but that didn't happen and I'm glad that didn't happen. However, I've, ever, I've been nervous ever since then and I do quite like the idea of tubeless tyres. And it seems to me a strange thing that when you consider how well Royal Enfield is doing, in terms of it selling in the market, that they don't come up with a proper engineered uh, tire uh, rim that would allow for tubeless tires because it takes a huge agony out of the motorcycling, but maybe it's the economics of it. BMW do, for example, but that's in a different price range of bike. Well, um, sorry, I didn't fully understand the question, but one of the things that they do in um, desert racing, etc., cetera, um, is put a moose, what they call a moose in the tire. So it's like um, um, a foam inner, so you don't sw you, you, they don't go down. I'd be really interested to know anybody who got any experience of people who have switched to some sort of uh, different rim, rim that would allow them to use tubeless tyres. I know that it's, it's not supported by Royal Enfield, but I do know people try to do that. Any, I'm sorry, I can't, because we've got the light showing us. Any more questions? Yep, I've got one. <laughs> I've got the oh, no, sorry, you've got the mic. I just wanted to ask, actually, my um, experience of, of touring was really sort of solo touring in uh, Scandinavia, so it's, it's more cold than hot. But the question I've got for you, really, is about fuel. Um, how did you get on with fuel? Um, we, we didn't seem to have any problems with that in the sense that there was no additional filters fitted on the tank to, to deal with that. We were using regular fuel stations. However, we clearly did have a problem with Mike's bike that was fuel related. Uh, that was the theory about why that cylinder was holed. So uh, we, we just pressed on. Um, no special regard was made for that. Thank you. Lady I was just wondering how long the whole journey took you. The, the whole odyssey took us two years to become motorcyclists. No, the, the journey itself took us about 15 days. That, that includes that we were staged for about two nights in Gibraltar. And it included that really great weekend in Andalusia. Um, and, and the book, actually, on the journey, particularly, the book spends... Quite a lot of time, not quite a lot, but the book found interesting people in interesting places that had interesting quirky history. And that was quite, it was quite fun, delving into what was so interesting about those places. And great characters, really great personalities. So it's the interaction with the unknown people that is... I think it comes down to this. If you travel and you want to absorb everything that that culture has to offer, then you're inclined to look beyond you know, the hotel restaurant. You're inclined to want to, to, to observe. I mean, my favorite pastime is what I call corner cafe culture. I, there's nothing, I like being in a foreign place, sitting on a corner cafe with a, a tea or a coffee, and just watching the people and all of that, and trying to see 
what there is out there that I could do myself or have myself to make me a more interesting thing. So you look at the architecture, you look at the costumes that people are wearing, and you choose something out of that that you say, yes, I'm going to get one of those, I'm going to wear that. And I think when you do that, then all of that color, that cosmopolitan flavor that's out there, runs off into you, and you're better for that. Yep. One last question. Can... Oh, it's Keith, I think, yes. <laughs> Hi, Keith. Um, had you read any of the other travel books by motorcycle travelers, like... Um, Ted Simon, Gypsy's Travels. And yes, like. I have. Who has not? When I, we were learning to ride, I was looking for books that would point the way, that would give me hope. So there were, I found that there were two types of books. There were those books which were a manual on how to ride a motorcycle. And they would talk about the technique, but they wouldn't necessarily explain the art. Not in a way that I could grasp. And that's probably my fault. And then there are books like uh, Ted Simon. Do you know it was his 92nd birthday about three weeks ago? And only now he's thinking about maybe he shouldn't be riding motorcycles. Um, now, the thing about Ted Simon's book, he went round the world and then wrote a book. How can you write a, a one book about a journey around the world on a motorcycle? He could have written a book on every country he was in. Um, but that started off the idea of um, the, whole, the whole liberation of traveling the world on two wheels, lightly loaded, and, and being close to the people and just taking every moment as it comes, which is a great adventure. So yeah, I, I read as many as they can. But I was talking this morning about another book that I've read, and this is called um, Wind, Stars, and Sand. And this is written between the wars by a French pilot who was a pilot for the uh, French mail system. And his job was to pilot one of those sort of early planes to carry the mail to faraway places, down deep into South America. They would fly from Toulouse across the Mediterranean and deep into Africa. And every day he took off, before he took off, he would check the loading, he would check the plane, he would check the fuel, he would check all of that. His charts and his notes were his personally and they were very valuable to him because when he took off, he knew there was a good chance that something was gonna happen that was gonna jeopardize his life or perhaps end it. And every flight was like that. And I like reading that sort of book because just a little bit of that flavor is with you when you're on your motorbike in a faraway country and you're just heading straight down that road going into the unknown. What great adventure that is. Ladies and gentlemen, can I give you Keith Butcher and Absurd. Thank you. Thank you.